Recovery Elevator, episode 226. It was just sad. I, I really can, I can remember feeling trapped in it. And, and it became a, apparent that I definitely had a problem at that, at that point. And I really was powerless. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Tim. He's from Boston, Massachusetts. He's 36 years old, and he's on day two of sobriety. So guys, Tim scheduled an interview with me and then drank. He then emails me saying, hey, Paul, I don't know if I'm the best candidate to come on your recovery podcast. After all, I, I just drank. And I said to myself, gosh, a guy who's struggling to stay sober, he's in the middle of it right now, and he's honest with myself and honest with himself about what's going on. I said, of course, this guy's the perfect person to have on the podcast. So I emailed him back and said, Tim, I love you, brother, and uh, I want you to come on the podcast. So guys, you're going to love it. It's a fantastic interview. And guys, we've got just a few spots left for the annual Recovery Elevator Retreat, which takes place this August 14th through the 18th in the beautiful forest in Big Sky Country, close to Bozeman, Montana. This retreat was an absolute blast in 2017, but this year, we're taking it to the next level. In addition to incredible workshops put on by industry professionals, we're going to connect with others who wish to live an alcohol-free life and just have a good time. I don't want to give the full itinerary away, but we may be checking out some waterfalls, perhaps some paddle boring, some campfires, some chamours. And again, this event is a celebration of your decision to move forward in life without alcohol. Go to recoveryelevator.com to get registered, and you can also see the workshop list there as well. And we've got another sober itinerary open for registration right now. In fact, this is the first time I think I've had registration open for two events at the same time. Cool stuff's happening. So this is for the Asia Adventure trip, which happens January 20th to the 31st. And this will be a trip of a lifetime. On this 12-day trip, we fly into Bangkok, Thailand. We're going to check out this incredible city for a couple days. Head north to the jungles of Thailand, where we will be visiting a place called Elephant World. We then make our way into Cambodia, where we check out Angkor Wat and some of the world's most impressive archaeological sites. Go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary details and registration. We've already had several people registered and spaces limited. Okay, let's get started. There are two articles I want to talk to you about today, and links to both articles can be found in their show notes or to recoveryelevator.com episode 226. And I also want to thank Carrie Mack, who has done such a fantastic job with the show notes since she took them over roughly 15 weeks ago. Thank you so much, Carrie. The show notes are fantastic. Okay, so the first one is from a USA Today article published on May 7th, 2019. It says, alcohol use soaring worldwide. The average adult now consumes about 1.7 gallons of pure alcohol per year. And unfortunately, this trend is forecasted to continue up till 2030. So this study analyzed data from 189 countries around the world. And this may come as a shock to Americans, especially those who live in or around the Green Bay area. The heaviest drinkers still live in Central and Eastern European countries. So just in the past 27 years... The total volume of alcohol people consumed globally each year increased by 70%. Wow. So this is from 5.5 billion gallons in 1990 to 9.4 billion gallons in 2017. As of 2017, the most recent year for which statistics are available, the increase equates to about 1.7 gallons of pure alcohol per year per adult. This means an average adult consumes about one drink a day, whether it's a 12-ounce beer, five ounces of wine, or an ounce and a half of distilled spirits, the study said. So I know what you're saying, because I'm saying the same thing. If the average American drinks 1.7 gallons of pure alcohol per year, and that's from one drink a day, well, when I was drinking, it was a wee bit more than that, way more than one drink per day. So I must have been throwing down, I don't know, 9, 10, maybe 15 gallons of pure alcohol per year. Yikes. Okay, so the World Health Organization, the WHO, had a goal of reducing the harmful use of alcohol intake by 10% by 2025. Sorry, WHO, I don't think this is going to happen, but I'm here to help. And you've got a ton of listeners who are all here to help. So we're behind your World Health Organization. We also want to see this goal achieved. 
All right. So why am I talking about this article? First off, it isn't supposed to be triggering or, or to create inner trepidation or anxiety in any way. I don't want anyone listening right now to get discouraged and say, fuck it. Rates of alcohol consumptions are going up. Why fight it? Not at all. This is an informative and empowering podcast, and this is good information to know. So even though on a global level, people are drinking more, you've made it further than 95% of people out there. Because you're listening to this podcast and you're starting to make changes in your life. But I do want to shine light on the fact that globally people are drinking more. Not because there are citizens on the globe that weren't aware of the existence of a drug called alcohol. In fact, there might only be a handful of people on this globe that don't know alcohol exists. So as you've heard me say this before, so as you've heard me say before on this podcast, addictions are no more than signposts in life. Now, to be fair, this article isn't necessarily linked to addiction, but I've learned a couple things along the way, and this will most definitely have a trickle-down effect. Addiction is also on the rise worldwide. And, and I mentioned probably five to six episodes ago about a re relatively new concept called anxiety consumerism, where people are buying weighted blankets, fidget spinners, incense oils, and monthly subscription to meditation apps like never before. So this is a representation of the global wobble that we are currently experiencing. On a global scale, the levels of depression and anxiety are at unprecedented rates. And I don't want to put my foot in my mouth here, but this is a good thing because we must first recognize the dysfunction, what's going wrong before we can then address the issue. So this is the normal progression of how collective we depart from addiction. This has to happen. And another reason I want to mention this article is, is to inform you that you're not alone. Many people are going through this. Many are experiencing this wobble. And I know, especially in 2014, when I was in the thick of my addiction, I felt like I was the only person on this planet with a drinking problem. But that wasn't the case. There are so many others going through it. In America alone, it's estimated right around 23 million people are, are currently experiencing an alcohol use disorder alone. Okay, so you're not alone. But on a brighter side, and you probably saw the title of this podcast, that Americans drank less alcohol in 2018 for a third straight year. Yeah, no kidding. Somebody sent me a January 17th article in Bloomberg that said just that. Yeah, for three straight years, Americans are drinking less. You know, thank you for the internet for sending me two nearly conflicting articles in the same day that I'm covering in this episode. Um, and you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but gosh, do I want to get behind this one and, and I want to believe it because there's actually things that are lining up in the world that match this phrase. So, all right, Americans are drinking less alcohol. Let's explore this article for a second here. So total cases of beer, wine, and spirits consumed in the U S dropped by 0.8% to nearly 3.35 billion in 2018. This is the third consecutive year of declining volumes, according to a report from IWSR, the International Wines and Spirit Record, which studies the beverage market. The article says, It's clear that Americans are drinking less overall, which is likely a result of the continued trend toward health and wellness. Brandy Rand of IWSR said, So globally, people are drinking more alcohol. However, there's an offshoot. Americans are drinking less. So, Nice job, America. There's a lot of things we got to get buttoned up for sure, but let's take it. Here, here's a win, and uh, we'll, we'll take it on this one. And so Americans are starting to wake up. A couple episodes ago, I had a podcast titled The Unfuck Yourself Movement. It is happening. Part of this movement is a trend towards health and wellness, but I think it's a bigger trend headed to presence. It's a trend that people want to be in environments where an external substance is not required to internally put us in the position where we can have fun. And so people are being pulled towards these environments. And I talked about in last episode, um, the New York Times article that, that talked about the New York sober bar scene. And so, like I mentioned, some trends are matching up with this statement. Um, never before have there been more sans bars. These are alcohol-free locations or pop-up bars where you can go and just get crafty mocktails that don't involve the drug alcohol. There are sober music festivals that are popping up across the country. How cool is that? So there's more promising indicators for the future because millennials who get a lot of flack for being, well, millennials, um, they may be the generation to break this cycle. Studies show that millennials are trying less drugs and they're taking their first sips of alcohol at later ages in life. 
So like I said earlier, if you're drinking more and more, you find yourself struggling with addiction, you're not alone. But on the other side of the coin, if you're moving forward in an alcohol-free life, guess what? You're also not alone. Never, ever before in time has there been more people exploring an alcohol-free life. And never has there been more people not exploring, but just moving forward in life without alcohol. Unprecedented numbers. Okay. There's a new term called sober curious, and this is for a large population group that doesn't necessarily have an issue with alcohol, but even this group of people is starting to wake up and recognize that maybe the messages that big alcohol is telling us aren't panning out to be true in real life. So these are brilliant, exciting times to explore life without alcohol. Never have there been more opportunities tools, resources, treatment techniques than ever to move forward in life with, without alcohol. In fact, Ibogaine, this is for the opiate crisis we're hearing right now. Ibogaine, Iboga is a powerful plant medicine that is derived from a plant that's found in Africa. So Mexico and Costa Rica, there's powerful Ibogaine treatment centers where people who are addicted to opiates go down and they're seeing unprecedented results. So never before have there been more options, more groups to join, online groups, in-person groups, more communities that are starting to speak out and be vocal about what they're offering, what their mission statement is. We're not stepping around the issues anymore. And hey, character defects, let's stop focusing on our defects. Most likely, most likely we're aware of what our blind spots are. So not saying ignore your character defects, but if at the end of the day we're only focusing on our character defects, we're missing something big. We're missing uh, what we can leverage in life, the gifts and talents that we've been given, what we're good at. So that was kind of an offshoot I just threw into the end right there. But don't worry so much about these defects and maybe why we drink, but focus more on your superpowers and what makes you so badass. Okay, enough out of me. You're going to love this interview with Tim, but before we get there, let's hear from today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? In early sobriety, I experienced some intense cravings to feel differently, and I wanted to use alcohol to make that happen. It's helpful to talk to somebody about these cravings. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. For Recovery Elevator listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator. Tim, how are you? Doing great, Paul. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And Tim, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Oh, currently I have a whopping two days under my belt. Day two with a sobriety date of May 13th. And listeners, Tim emailed me a couple days ago. So we had this interview scheduled for about a week and emailed me two days ago and said, Hey, Paul, I want to let you know that I drank. I might not be the ideal candidate for an interview on your recovery podcast. And I saw the email and I thought to myself, no, Tim, you're exactly who I want to have on this podcast. Number one, Tim, you came forward. You're honest. You were honest with yourself and me. I said, hey, I, I drank. Um, maybe we shouldn't do the interview. But uh, but Tim, this is, this is why I want to have you on the interview. Your day two, the, the, I think the first three days are the most important days on a journey. And this is a real and authentic podcast to, to think you're the first person that scheduled an interview and then drank before the interview happens or, or people do an interview and they stay sober for the rest of their life. That's, that's just not how it goes. This is a beast we're up against and I'm, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. So, so thanks for joining us, Tim. And, and how are you feeling today? Uh, I feel, I feel good. 
this is a relapse for me and I've had some stretches of sobriety uh, recently, but, you know, part of what has drawn me to your podcast is how, you know, emphatic you are in saying that relapse is a part of it. And that you, you mentioned you have relapsed, you know, multiple times and uh, that gives me hope. Whereas I think before I was starting to really try to recover, a relapse would send me into a very dark place. But, you know, I, I, I failed and I made a decision to quit after three beers and immediately regretted it. And I've been, you know, positive and believing that I can make progress from here. And Tim, one of my goals is to change the narratives around just the word relapse. In fact, in my book, I call it field research because uh, that's what it was for me. I had to go back out and learn these lessons that have propelled me forward in my sobriety today. And those lessons that I learned are a big part of the foundation that I have. And, and I hear the word you said, I failed. Uh, my stomach kind of cringed there. It, these, aren't, these aren't failures. These are just, they're field, it's field research. They're, it's times where we need to reinforce the why, the why we're moving forward in life without alcohol. So, Tim, I just want to say thank you for joining us. I know you're nervous. It probably... It probably doesn't feel right. You know, you, I'm sure you wanted to come on this podcast with, with more than two days, but hey, this is how it goes. And it, it's beautiful every step of the way, so I'm, I'm glad to have you. And so, Tim, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, you have a family. Most importantly, what do you like to do for fun, Tim? Sure. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. Came from an Italian family, uh, construction industry. Worked in the family business as a, as a kid and a teenager. You know, in high school, middle school, I developed a real passion for music and uh, wanted to pursue that with my life. So I, I dedicated myself as hard as I could to practice and, and just hours upon hours of, you know, voice lessons guitar lessons, piano lessons. And that led me into a career in the ministry in my early 20s as a worship leader, music minister, a lot of different names for what I did. Got married very young, married at 19. I'm still married to the same woman. We have three children. Uh, we're about to celebrate 17 years, June 1st. My career in the ministry has kind of passed, and now I'm back in quasi in the family business, but I'm working as a project manager for a company that installs high-end woodworking beams built in bookshelves. So it's a really, it's a creative field, something that I really tried to get away from in life. But oddly enough, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really happy uh, doing it because of the experience that I have. It, it feels good to be doing something that I know. I was taking some notes there. Did you say your age? How do you? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm 36 years old. Well, perfect. And Tim, give listeners some background about your drinking. Bring us up to speed. Tell us what it was like when you started drinking. What was that first drink like? When did you realize that alcohol might not be serving you in life? Then did you attempt to moderate, put rules into place with the rock bottom moments and try to give us ages or time frames as you bring us up to speed? Sure. First time my friends and I drank, we were about 15 years old and we were already kind of a skateboarder, kids that smoked pot. And so we were already pretty self-destructive, if you will, listening to a lot of really depressing music. So it was definitely something that I knew was coming. And that first night, we actually I drank so much that I actually got alcohol poisoning. I We were shotgunning beers and taking shots of different hard alcohol. And I started throwing up about 9, 10 o'clock and just kept drinking and spent the whole night in the shower throwing up and, and, and blacking out. And so that was kind of where I started already at a dangerous and problematic, you know, place. It was truly never a, a, a normal for me. I never was able to drink casually. So moving forward, you know, as a teenager, I wasn't really able to get alcohol all the time. But if I had it, we drank until we were basically sick, my friends and I. Moving forward, I married at 19. My wife's a few years older than me. And so she, who has never struggled with alcohol, was, you know, buying me some beers here and there. And I was in my early 20s, and I was drinking about a six-pack a day. And I just was around people that were doing that, and my family alcoholism was pretty prevalent. So I suppose I didn't think it was that bad. And I always knew the guy that was drinking a 12-pack a day, or I, met, I heard of a guy drinking a 24-pack a day. So um, was was just a beer drinker, loved beer. My friends all drank beer. And Tim, I imagine when you heard about the guys drinking 24 beers a day, 12 a day, you would tell yourself, well, no, I'm I'm just a six beer a day guy. I'm good, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and when I was probably about 
25, I, I attended my first AA meeting just, just to see. And, you know, again, I was probably six, seven, maybe getting up into like eight beers a day, you know, the occasional 10 beers on a weekend day. And I remember I went to an AA meeting and this gentleman shared and he talked about how he was drunk, went to the liquor store, got more alcohol, pulled out, backed into a police car. The guy had him telling this story, an unbelievable story. And I just was like, I don't belong here. I'm clearly not an alcoholic. This is crazy. And so through the through the rest of my 20s, I probably popped in on another two or three AA meetings, but continued to drink. Definitely started mixing it up with harder alcohol. Found my favorite drink, which was the Captain and Coke. I dabbled in that myself. Sure, sure. Yeah, I also have a, a passion for the sea. I'm a, I'm a sailor. And so it just fit the whole motif was that whole, uh, just the, the spice rum things. Sure, the marketing message hit. <laughs> oh, man, it just all lined up. So, you know, moving on into my 30s, my wife and I now are having pretty regular uh, arguments over my drinking. And I really now looking back understand how people become enablers. I, I, I didn't understand it before. I remember feeling like, why doesn't she just tell me to stop drinking and just say, that's it. You know what? You're, I, I'm not having it. You're not drinking anymore. But when you see someone suffering and manipulating, telling you the only thing that makes them feel normal is, is the drink. You know, I understand now in a different way, but she, she, she was tangled up in this. And I, I have a lot of guilt and things that I'm still trying to work through over that. Wait, Tim, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, did you almost, like internally you were seeking her to call you out and say, why, why are you drinking like this, Tim? Is that what I'm hearing? I do remember feeling that if she put her foot down and said, if, if you don't quit drinking or if you don't get your drinking under control, you know, we're, we're no longer going to be married. And uh, Okay, you were almost like hoping this was coming. All right. Yeah, like I'm one of those people, like I always said, I should have gone to boot camp. I really need someone to just really make it black or white for me. And I mean, I, I, millions of times I said, okay, look, I'm going to have no more than two drinks a day, you know, and I'm not going to drink this day and that day. And I mean, I, it's, it's countless times I tried to moderate. That's sure. the right word for that, right? Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So my pattern really was drink heavily and then I could have you know, six months, five months, three months of no drinking, but it, it was, it would come back and it would be a matter of a week or two weeks before I was right back to just daily drinking. Well, and let's drill into one of those periods of abstinence where you went six months or you know, several months at a time. Was there a specific moment you remember that caused you to drink again? Or was it more of a case of like, Hey, I just went several months in a row. There's no way I got a problem. It's exactly that. I, I told myself because I was able to just go this stretch, I must have control over it again. And, you know, when, when, we, when we would go through those, and I say we because I, I am blown away how tied in my wife is to this, not to say it's her fault in any way, but, well, we're married. It just is what it is. So but we would get into great shape. We would be active. And, uh, you know, you just get kind of feeling great, and you, 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 you go out and you say, wouldn't it be amazing to watch the sunset and have a glass of wine? And uh, you can think of a million excuses, but I guess it just really started catching up to me in my early 30s where I started seeing a pattern of a very short time from that first drink back before I was in a very down, uh, in a, in a downward spiral. So sure, you mentioned it was like a matter of weeks, right? Oh, yeah, it, it, it was it was quick. And and uh, then I then I started in my early 30s. The, my drinking in my 20s was I was like Joe six pack. Um, you know, pack a, a six pack of Coors Light or, you know, whatever. But in my 30s now, it changed. I started hiding alcohol. I started lying about how much I was drinking. I started getting the, you know, in north up north, we call those small bottles uh, nip. I don't know if people know what that is, but, you know, I'd, I'd have two or three of those bring the six pack home. So then it was eight. And I just, my whole world now was like calculating how I was going to be able to get that buzz in my thirties. That's when that really started. And it was just sad. I, I really can, I can remember feeling trapped in it and, and it became a, apparent that I definitely had a problem at that, at that point. And I really was powerless. I, I have a couple of months and then I saw, I, like I said, I've been to AA, but I never had a sponsor. I never read the, I may, I may have read the first couple of pages 
in the in the big book, but I never worked the steps all through my early 30s. Sure. And, and Tim, you mentioned in your early 30s, you, you realized it was a problem. Can you drill down and find a specific moment where you said, you know, was it a rock bottom moment or was there a specific moment where it was clear that it was a problem? Yeah, it is because, you know, you hear blackout drunk and I think I had joked in my 20s because I had gotten drunk in my 20s and joked a lot about, oh, I got blackout drunk. Well, in fact, I wasn't. It was in my early 30s where I actually started blacking out. And what I mean by that, for anyone that doesn't <laughs> know, it means that I would go into periods in time where I would almost go into like an autopilot mode. And then I would come to and I had either driven or gone to a place or just done stuff. Just just like I remember the first time I blacked out, I woke up. I was hanging out with my friends. And I came to and I was in a bathroom at a gas station. And I remember, I, I can just vividly remember looking around, not knowing how, where I was, who I was with. And I can just remember this terror coming over me of, of what, what, what have I done? Where am I? And I walked out of the gas station. Thank God my friends were outside. And I was like, okay, now I could piece it back together. But that was the beginning of a season of now where I started blackout drinking. So, and that was then, you know, you have a problem when you're, when you're uh, just doing that on a regular basis. Yeah. I started to check things off the yet scale. Well, I'm drinking, but I haven't blacked out yet. Well, that happens. And yeah, so you're in your early thirties, you're blacking out. You have a scary moment at a gas station. And yeah, that would be scary coming to in a, in the, in the back room of a gas station saying, where the hell am I? What happens next? Well, I mentioned that I was in the ministry and I got a job offer when I was, I think, yeah, I was 30 years old. I got a job offer to come down to Atlanta and work at a, a huge church. Well, huge for some people. For me, it was, it was huge. It was a 2,400 member church. And this was my dream. You know, there was like professional lighting and in-ear monitoring and just like a real legitimate professional stage set up, you know, multi-million dollar facility. And this was like my life's dream. So we moved down to Atlanta. And the thing that's interesting about a career in that, in, in the field, in the ministry, is that you are you're continuously surrounded by people, but is the most isolated you can ever physically be because they don't want you to be broken and real. They need, they need, they want to be broken and real with you and you have to be strong for them. So I was counseling people about their alcohol problems and their drug problems. So that was six years of, you know, a lot of guilt and shame because I, my drinking continued and I did it, but I had to do it in secret. And so, you know, that leads to a lot of guilt and then guilt causes more self-medicating. So it just turned into a, a very, bad cycle for me. Did it reach a precipice? Well, okay. So now two, probably now let's fast forward to about 30, be about 33, 34 years old at this point. And my body is starting to break down. I'm, I'm going to the doctor and saying my knees are hurting. I feel dizzy. I was getting a lot of panic attacks and I was getting like vertigo spells of just dizziness. And they couldn't tell me why. And it was like, well, maybe you need to exercise. Maybe you need to eat better. And uh, I, I think in the back of my mind, I knew it was probably related to the drinking, but it didn't stop. Did the doctors ask how much you drinking or were you honest with God, them? No, I lied so bad. So my wife's a nurse and she always says, you know, when we ask people, we add whatever it is, two or three drinks to that number. And when I was 33, 34 ish, I went and saw a psychiatrist and I told them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this. And I explained my symptoms and she put me on Adderall. And so, yeah. And so now, so the past few years, the blanking out drinking has been at a whole new level because I started mixing that medication and I got addicted to it. And I kept going back and saying, wow, this is just what I needed but I need a higher dose. So I got on the maximum dose of Adderall and oddly enough, hanging out with other people that are doing Adderall. So I kind of became like a, like a drug dealer in a sense, like people could come to me and they knew I had, you know, I had this on me at all times and, you know, and I managed it well. And the funny thing about Adderall is, is that it does help you focus. It does help you work harder. It does help you get more done. And if I could have maybe just done that, but unfortunately the alcohol is always there lurking and, then I started getting 
much heavier in the alcohol, mixing it with Adderall. And then so I had two pills a day. I'd save them, take them in the evening, drink a bunch of alcohol, and then black out. And then I, I prided myself all these years for all this drinking. Never drank and drove, ever. Uh, but the past two or three years is when I would drink and drive. Never got a DUI, but two times I crashed my truck, woke up to come out in the morning, and it was just like I had ripped a tire off or I had ran up against the guardrail and scratched the whole truck, the side of the truck. So two different times I've had blackout episodes where I've driven and been very reckless and you know just, just made some very poor decisions. Sure. Interesting thing about Adderall, let's go back here for a second. So I believe it was developed in 1921 by a German company called Merck, uh, is called Pervitine. And Adderall was uh, the reason for the initial blitzkrieg of the German army and also can be attributed to the downfall of the German army as well. And, and I was on Adderall as well. I went through to a psychiatrist, was put on Adderall and a Vyvanse. And these are powerful stimulants. So I realized the same thing. I was needing higher doses to have the same effect. I did some research. And Adderall is actually tiny, tiny doses of meth, pharmaceutical-grade meth. And once I figured that out and internally looked at that, it was, this is fueling the problem. This wasn't helping anything. Yeah, I had to come off it. It was a tough, a tough one to come off of, but, but good job for recognizing that. And then you mentioned that you had no DUIs. I kind of hung my hat on that for a while, and there was a yet scale, and I finally got one. But looking back, I had I should have had three or four. And, and you mentioned in the email you sent me, you said you recently did seven months sober, and then you had a relapse 22 days ago to where we're at today. Bring us up to speed. Well, uh, on my own, I did that seven months, and I felt great. I was still taking Adderall, and I was smoking a THC vape pen. So I wasn't really sober, but I was not drinking alcohol. So I was, although I was proud of myself, I was still dealing with the, the depression and the stress that goes along with being an addict, you know. So then I uh, had a relapse after that seven months, and that was about, that was 25 days ago, and drank a lot. Oddly enough, I, it was one of the times when I actually drove my truck and, and crashed my truck and caused thousands of dollars worth of damage to it. So just very clearly like, okay, this is the final straw. So this, this, this past 25 days ago was when I really went to AA for the first time and said, I'm going to take this serious. And this guy raised his hand and he said, if things something to the effect of, if you're sitting in here and, you know, you got nice clothes on and you're trying to, you know, look good and you're, you know, that was me. I was the guy that I got like dressed up to go to AA and wanted to look good. And, and he spoke right to me and I could tell he was just a no BS kind of guy. And he was very hard. And I walked up to him and I go, look, I, at the end of the meeting, I'm a lot, I'm a manipulator. And if you give me an inch, I'm going to take a mile. I need someone who's going to really call me on all my shit. And he goes, you got the right guy. And so I met Brett just under a month ago and uh, we have a really great relationship and it's been incredibly helpful. Sadly, two weeks ago, my father, who has also struggled with, with, with alcoholism, but he could never admit it, um, he actually committed suicide. Oh, man, I'm sorry. And you mentioned he, he had a drinking problem He did. As well. And, you know, we, we drank together a lot. And I, I, I was seeing, and this is interesting because I, as I was not drinking, there was some times where I would visit him because they still live up in Boston and we're down in Atlanta. And I would not drink and they, they would be, I can't believe you're not drinking. And I was so proud of myself. I'm not drinking. But the more I got sober, the more his and my relationship struggled. And I didn't know how to deal with that. So I tried to continuously say, no, no, have fun, have, have drinks, please. Just don't, don't mind me. A couple of times I even got some non-alcoholic beers, which I hate. But, and he had his own challenges and his own demons. But yeah, without a warning, he he committed suicide. No suicide note. Um, oddly, his life was actually turning around for the better, and no one can make any sense of it. There was detectives involved. It looked like it could have been a murder at first. So, you know, this is uh, this is me being very honest right now. It's it's hard. I don't tell this version of it to the people around me just yet because I don't know how to live with this yet. But you know, I'm 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 seeing. Well, let me say this. So the two weeks ago, I, I went up, all of our family came, they're all drinking, and, and I was sober, and I stayed sober through all of it. But it was funny that once I came home, settled back in, and, and had cried a million tears, and thought I had processed it to some level, 
that's sort of when it really crept in and hit me. And then it became, for the first time since I started going to AA, almost uncontrollably, I started thinking about, you know, just that cold beer, you know, that, that draft beer. So I, I went to a bar and said, I'm going to have two. And I had, I had three. And it's funny because someone at the bar had given me a little bit of an attitude problem. And I saw myself about to, at the very least, give him a dirty look or to say something snark to him. And I recognized it in myself. I was like, wow, if this had happened and I had had six or seven, I could be in a lot of trouble right now because I would be that way. I would run my mouth. And I guess I was leaning on some of my recovery, you know, and, and seeing what I was about to become and what path I was about to go down. And so I'm very grateful for this. I made a decision. I left the bar. I, I, I quit after three. I called my sponsor immediately. He was, he was pissed. You know, why didn't you call me? I said, well, I didn't call you because I wanted to drink. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to get talked off the ledge. I wanted to drink. And that was, you know, that, that was two days ago. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I'm going to say what myself and all the listeners are thinking right now is you are doing a fantastic fucking job, dude. Thank you. Thank you very much. You are doing an incredible job. And this thing is not black and white. It's not you're drinking or you're sober. You're sober success. You're drinking a failure. You did seven months sober. You had a relapsed field research 25 days ago. Your father killed himself two weeks ago. Before that, you're trying to go down this pathway without alcohol, which put somewhat of a divide between your relationship with your father. He kills himself two weeks ago. You had three beers two days ago. You email me and say, hey, I'm not the best candidate. Tim, you're like the best candidate that I can have on this podcast right now. You're going through some real life wobbles <laughs> in this moment. And, you're, dude, you're doing it. You're doing it. And I know listeners, same thing. They're going through difficult issues in life. They're challenges. They're opportunities for us to build some sobriety muscles. But, Tim, you've... You've got some big ones, man, and I want you to just let I want you to know that we're all we're all here with you and we all recognize that you're doing a tremendous job and I hope you realize that too, do you? I know that I need to I mean it's it's cheesy. I need to love myself enough to to want to be sober and for the first time in my life, I mean I look at my father's suicide and and though it wasn't an alcohol related situation, I really believe alcohol was at the center of that decision and had led him to a lot of bad decisions, this being, you know, the worst of them. But I see my future and I have three children of my own. I have three teenagers and I want to leave a legacy. I think it was uh, Jordan Peterson had said, your, your goal in life as a man is to be the strongest person at your father's funeral. And I read that after uh, I had done the, my dad's funeral and everything. And when I left my, my dad's funeral, that's what I said. I said, my job moving forward is to build such a great legacy that I instill in my children something so pure and beautiful that it is passed on to their children. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is if I'm sober. And I see that beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's no more bargaining. There's no more moderating. I cannot have alcohol, period. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how funerals can shine the light on where to go next. I think I've mentioned this the last two podcast episodes where I went to my grandfather's funeral and it was a photo of him on standing on a tank at World War II. And I'm just a, a, a total clown in life at that moment. So I, I feel you. And, and so with, on day two right now, how are you feeling about this journey? And I'm not saying only day two. We got to get that thinking right out the window. You are on two glorious days, man. This is huge. Nice job. How are you feeling? You know, I, I feel good. But my last relapse had happened 20 five days ago, some, whatever it was, I had gotten so drunk that I actually had a hangover for like three days. So that affected my job. It, it's just everything. I was, I was, I was miserable. And that's why that first two or three days of recovery for me at that time was so difficult. And I, I wanted a drink so bad. It was, it was incredible. And I knew that even if I had just one, because there's a couple of people that didn't know the severity of my problem, were like, just have a beer. Just have one beer, and, and I and I stuck with it. But this time, I didn't get a hangover. The weather when I was up in Boston was awful, rainy, chilly, and I come home here to Atlanta. It's beautiful. 
I've, I didn't lose my job. I almost lost my job because of these relapses. But my boss, I've been able to be honest with him, which was really hard. He's like, you know, why can't you stay later? Why can't you stay? And I'd say, oh, I got things with family. And he finally was like, you know, what's going on? And I said, you know, I, I, I go to AA now. And uh, he's like, well, that makes sense, you know, and I thought I was going to be, you know, fired or, you know, he was going to see me differently, but he's actually been very understandable. And that was a tremendous thing for me. I thought when I told people I was going to AA that I was going to be blacklisted, but people have been very supportive. And so today, day two, I feel, I feel great. I actually feel great. I have energy at work. I'm, I'm getting up and, and praying, which even when I was in the ministry, you know, being very honest was, was hard for me. Spiritually, I've had a lot of incredible highs and incredible lows because I was supposed to be the, the one who had the answers, and I just didn't. I just didn't um, because I'm just a regular guy, uh, <laughs> and I've paid the price for my mistakes just like we all will. And so spiritually, I'm trying to rebuild my identity and trying to understand what that looks like moving forward, and that is hard. But, you know, we're just one day at a time. That's just the most freeing, wonderful aspects of this. I don't have to worry about anything except this day. And so far, so good. And listeners, I want to reiterate what Tim said. And it's not unique to his industry, where he's at, when he was honest with a professional or with a, with a coworker about attending AA, or really any version of burning the ships. 99% of the time, it's going to be well-received. I'm going to go 99.9% of the time, it's going to be well-received. Um, again, we think we're going to be blacklisted, but I want to say that is not the case. So if you're in that situation in work, they probably already know that yeah. something is up. Just It's going to feel good. You probably felt great getting that off your shoulders, oh, right? Oh, you know, seeing his response, because you're right. They do know something's up because you're not maybe seeing all of the, you know, tendencies or behaviors or, or ways that you're, you know, dodging questions or whatever it is that you're doing. People can sense when something's wrong. And when I saw his the look on his face where he's like, well, that makes sense. That was a very freeing and healing moment because I like my job. I don't want to lose my job. I want to stay stable for my family. And it solidified the future in a way for me that he understands that, sure, I may not be able to stay as late, but he said, you know, you can come in early, which was a bummer. But <laughs> either way, there's an understanding now of what's really going on in my life. And that is a beautiful thing. And Tim, do you have any indication of why you drink? In an email you sent me on May 10th, you, you talked about anxiety, depression, some suicidal tendencies, but do you know why you're drinking? What are you covering up? That's a, that's a, a, a good question and one that I am peeling the onion away to, to, to hone in on the real reason. All I can say is that, like many others, the, the, the feeling of love, the feeling of being in touch with your emotions when I had the relapse 25 days ago, I said to my wife, she said, why did you drink? I said, because I needed to cry. I've always, my 20s, I, I think I went six straight years without crying. I just was not able to get in touch with the emotions. And so I'd listen to music, I'd blast music, and I'd, I'd be moved in movies. And I'd love those moments because it would stir me emotionally. And alcohol was absolutely a counterfeit way of just diving into a pool of emotions. And I could laugh and I could cry. When I relapsed, I actually called up sick from work, and I just laid in bed. I drank a 12-pack, and I watched movies about music and just, just cried. And it was like this beautiful thing, but it, it, it is a, it's a lie. And now that I'm really starting to work on myself, working on recovering, now I almost can't stop crying, especially now with what happened with my father. I can cry on command, and I always envied people that were that in touch with their emotions. But I, I just wanted to feel, and as a young uh, jaded teenager listening to Nirvana, you know, absolutely my own worst enemy. But growing up in the 90s, I think depression was the cool thing to do. And I see a lot of kids now, uh, teenagers, it's like hip to be depressed and to act like you hate life. And I get it, you know, teenage angst. And so I guess I was working so hard to be depressed and then being so broken and affected by that, that I was depressed that when I started drinking, it was like, wow, this is what emotions feel like. But I was blocking them myself. It was my own self-sabotage that I, I blocked those emotions and made myself the type of person that could only feel emotion when I was drinking. 
Tim, this one isn't a, isn't a normal response, but you said it earlier. You want to feel, and normally I hear people drinking because they don't want to feel. You were using the alcohol to ignite the emotions, ignite the feeling, and it sounds like your unconscious and conscious mind are on the same page as you just want to feel. And my piece of advice is the body and the mind, you're going to encounter scenarios that are going to allow you to feel. And one of them might have happened two weeks ago with mm-hmm. your father. And, and it should happen naturally. I don't, don't recommend going out and finding situations to feel because that's reinforcing that something is missing. They'll show up. They'll show up. And I got one more question before we hit the rapid fire round, Tim. So you've got two glorious days. I know in my first 30 days, cravings were a norm. So what's your plan? What's your strategy? What are you going to do when a craving hits? First of all, I am a big believer now, and I did it for this past uh, 20 23 days of getting up and really starting the day in meditation or prayer of some kind. And so every day, if you don't start it correctly with an intention to know that those cravings are coming and set your day up prepared for that, you know, I think you're just setting yourself up to fail. The other thing that I did was, is I believe in multiple sponsors and really not being afraid to ask for help. This was very hard for me. And I'm and I know that it's hard for everybody, but I now have a network of if my sponsor is not available, this person, if he's not available, this person. So I have to get better at asking for help. This has been one of my major downfalls in life, but multiple people know I'm on day two. And also I've been asking them to check in on me. So as I'm going through my day, if I'm busy, someone checks in on you, you know, it, it, it helps you to not maybe go down that spiral where you get some depression going and it leads to a craving. So I'm, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm having people check in on me and I'm absolutely staying connected as much as I possibly can right now. It sounds like a fantastic strategy. And, and Tim, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes, sir. righty, Tim, worst memory from drinking. Oh, uh, worst memory from drinking was probably two years ago. I made a big scene at a restaurant, embarrassed my wife and my friends. I, I stacked a bunch of dishes and smashed my fist down on the table and was, was, was the funny guy that night and um, just just drank way too much and had to get thrown out. And my wife, I just remember looking at how beautiful she looked and just was such a embarrassment. My friends who were, were laughing and were kind of cool with everything, I guess, I could just see this look on their faces. And as an adult, and I'm 34 years old, this is like the behavior of a teenager. Uh, no, it's not a behavior. It's a teenager, but it's, 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 it's awful behavior. And uh, I just saw myself. I saw myself. I, I felt like I was a clown. I just, I just was, a, was just a, a disgrace. And fortunately, it didn't help me to quit drinking. But I just, I'll never forget the look. Like, like I pulled the curtain back and everybody for, for a moment saw who I really was in that moment because I was able to polish myself up so well and act like I had it all together. And I felt as though people saw me naked in that moment. So I, I'll never forget that. And talk to us about an aha moment you've had along this journey. It can be with alcohol or, or a lesson you've learned. You know, uh, I wish I remember who said Actually, you said it, but it was definitely on a podcast of yours, it might have been you or, or uh, one of your guests, but um, they said, you know, life isn't happening to you, it's happening for you. And then I heard someone else say, say, life isn't happening to you, it's happening from you. And so that concept has been so incredibly mind-blowing to me as you sit with that and as you allow that to sink in, because you can take everything that happens to your in life, like, why is this happening to me? Anything, and, you know, the life's turn red. Too many lights turn red on your drive in and you're going to be a little bit late. Why is this always happened to me? No, it happened for me. Okay. Well, clearly I needed to leave five minutes earlier. I know that for tomorrow. Good lesson. Got it. It's a perspective change. And that is critical uh, for anyone in, in this journey because that's where the root of, I think, a lot of these cravings be- come in is because your perspective is all wrong and you're seeing situations like uh, a drunk, like an addict who is looking basically for any excuse to feel sorry for 
I, that's that's me. I'm just always looking for an excuse to feel sorry for myself. And I have reasons now in life, oddly enough. But no, life is not happening to us. It's happening for us or from us, whatever version of that works. But life's happening for me. And all these challenges are there for me to learn and to roll with and to grow from. And uh, I'm, I'm doing my best to really embrace that more and more. Tim, this thing called life is all rigged in our favor. <laughs> it gets confusing at times and it's damn convincing, but it's all working for us. I love your answer there. And, and Tim, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? How are we going to get day three, four, five, the first week, first 30? Just continuing on knowing that if I am isolated, which is my nature, I will not succeed at this. Uh, recently I was in a meeting with a gentleman who said, I have no mechanism. I, I can't cope with anything. I used to cope with drugs and alcohol, and now I can't. And, and you know, I'm, I'm alone. I'm, I'm alone. He just kept saying, and I'm alone. I'm alone. And I just was like, wow. And I, I wanted to just shake him and say, you know, yeah, you're, you, you're alone. And, but it, instead of me now focusing on the speck in someone else's eye, I'm, I'm focusing more to uh, on the plank in my own eye. It's the keys connection. Ah, a little Jesus quote there. Yeah, there we but, go. But um, when you think you're connected, you know, you probably need to double the amount of connection, quote unquote, that you have in your life. It is absolutely beyond critical that you are connected to the point of where your phone is basically just ringing off the hook and you've got some engagement connection with someone at all times throughout the day, multiple people, if you can. And that's been the good thing about AA is that some real people who have been through some real stuff uh, who don't judge you. It's important to be around people that don't judge. And that's not always easy, but uh, connection, man, that's the key. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? You know, I've got some people that are sober in my life that did not go through AA or they went to a rehab and then they basically just did it, you know, uh, with staying connecting with other people on a, on a journey to be sober. But AA is, has not been, for me, the, the, the one. I, I hate Paul, and I, I don't say this blow any smoke, but I've listened to multiple uh, podcasts and for some reason... Yours has been my my number one. I, every day I, I go back to it. That, that you had uh, Sue Mortar on, uh, that was just life changing. Her AI, yeah, I got her book. I'm, I've been rereading her book. The way you're going about your sobriety, and the way you're putting a positive spin on some really awful memories and 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 things that we're going through, that's the identity or the DNA of what I. And it's resonating with me. And so I, I do want to thank you very much. But your podcast has been absolutely critical. And I'm really glad I found it. Tim, thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of it. And for listeners, this is also my favorite resource in recovery is Recovery Elevator and Cafe RE. I mean, look at this. I, I've, I've had an hour-long conversation with your, your episode 226, 226 people in recovery. I mean, my recovery portfolio is, is just exploded, my recovery network. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I'm a little on the other side of it. I'm not the listener. I'm the one creating it. But yeah, so thanks for being a part of it. Um, I love doing it yeah. myself, and I don't know if I'd be here today without it myself. Yeah, in, in, in regards to sobriety, Tim, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is just uh, my, my sponsor said that and he said it very hard. I was, I was calling him complaining and he just said, you know, stop feeling so fucking sorry for yourself. I think that's the real key, uh, especially in this country. We really are all of us. I mean, even people that aren't addicts or drunks, we just feel so sorry for ourselves. And it's a simple it's a simple concept. And it seems like, OK, yeah, I get it. No, no. The opposite is accepting the things that come to you in your life and taking responsibility for them because you can change them. You actually have power. We have infinite power available to us to change them and to be better and to create a whole new life. And we can be anything we want to be people who feel sorry for themselves, myself included. And I consider myself an expert at this, at this point, but you know, we're complaining about a life that we designed. So take responsibility. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. That's, that's been, that's been my, uh, my mantra. <laughs> And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? Oh, uh, are you going to ask me? You might be an alcoholic if question. Oh, that's coming next. <laughs> you know it. Parting piece of advice. Don't wait. Not one more drink. It's always one more drink. It's always one more day. Do it right this second because life is worth it. Uh, the sun will come out. I mean, it's all cliches. It's all cheesy, but life is worth it. And it feels hopeless 
but it's not. And life gets better. Uh, I've got a long, long way to go. But the glimpses of normalcy, that's been, that's been something I, I wanted to mention. I remember a day when I started off going to AA. It was maybe two weeks into it. And I went to work and I, I was okay. I was just fine. I could do my job. It was no crisis. And I remember leaving work that day and I was like, what is this? And I identified it. It's, it was just a normal day. And it wasn't high. I always wanted to be in euphoria. People who are struggling with addiction, they believe that euphoria. Well, why is life worth living without euphoria? No, that's a lie. Normal life where you just go through it and it didn't crush you. You didn't need to be high. And you appreciated the trees. You appreciated your kids in a different way. You heard that song and it, and it moved you. And, or whatever it was. A normal life is so much more beautiful than I ever thought it was. So I do want to encourage people that it's right there. You're right there. You just got to make the decision. And Tim, I'm going to comment on something you just said, and I want to get your take on it. You said, I've got a long way to go. And my take on that is you've got a long way to go if that's what you tell yourself. So what's your thought on that? Good call. You know, I really just have today and uh, a beautiful, it's, it's doable it's, uh, it's, it's, I'm in it, I'm in the moment. And uh, you're right. I, I, it's, it's not a long way to go. It's, it's just being in the moment. And I need to just get better at that. I see that. And I'm, and I'm, I'm getting that. And it's such a beautiful lesson in life that keeps evolving as you keep trying to understand it. This moment is the most beautiful thing we have. You'll never be any younger. You know, you, you'll always, you, this is the greatest thing we have, this gift of this moment. And so uh, I'm sober now, and that's beautiful. And so I just need to stay focused on that. I love it. And Tim, you know what's coming <laughs> next. Your own customized, you might be an alcoholic. I think I have a really good one. So you might be an alcoholic if in the middle of the night, drunk, you are seeing fireworks in your rearview mirror only to discover that you had driven the wheel off of your truck and the brake caliper and the axle is scraping, shooting sparks 15 feet into the air. Uh, you might be an alcoholic. Oh. So, Oh, wow. Look at the fireworks. That's great. Oh, no, I just don't have a tire. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck on your journey and, and let me know how it goes. Okay? I sure will, Paul. Thanks for all you do. It, it really makes a difference and uh, I enjoy it. I'm going to keep listening. I got an email from a listener who was struggling with quitting drinking. She talked about all the resources, the tools that she's using. And one of these lines in the email uh, perked my ears, my interest. So a Western medicine doctor prescribed her meditation. Um, I read that line again. I was like, wait, did I read that? She said, yeah, my doctor prescribed me meditation. How cool is that? So meditation is something that Western medicine has, has difficulties conceptualizing uh, and studying to put data around it. But studies show that, especially in the prefrontal cortex, is that meditation has the ability to change the neural wiring inside the brain. So brain scans can show visible differences after a meditation practice has been picked up. Uh, meditation is a powerful tool out there. Uh, in fact, I want to explore this more in a, in a future podcast episode, but a couple things on meditation real quick. Um, meditation is not about turning off the mind. The mind is, is like the heart. It's like the lungs. It's like the pancreas. It serves a purpose and it just goes. You can't turn it off for good. It's a tool. The mind is a powerful tool, but like a tool, for example, a hammer, you can use that hammer to build a beautiful house, or you can use that same hammer to go into a museum and destroy everything in sight. So it's about finding ways to leverage this tool to your benefit. So meditation is not about shutting down the mind. Um, you know, so if you do a meditation and, and thoughts keep popping up, that's not a failed meditation. In fact, in fact, there is no such thing as a failed meditation. So what do you do with these thoughts? Well, the point meditation is to recognize them, but to let them go. Um, in the app Headspace, they use a fantastic analogy is imagine a dog sitting on the side of a busy road. Now your thoughts are the cars flying by and imagine a busy freeway. Sometimes we have those days where thoughts are just going boom, 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 back and forth. But you want to be that dog, that disciplined dog, just sitting stoically on the side of the road, watching these cars go back and forth without feeling the need or the pull to run out barking at a specific car, truck, scooter, bike, skateboarder flying across the road. 
And another thing with meditation is simply recognizing what is. And this is where it couples into mindfulness. It's realizing what is there in the current moment. This can be sights, sounds, smells, tastes, etc. So keeping that mind, that present in this moment. Meditation, powerful stuff. And guys, before we depart, sobriety isn't forever. It's just for right now, in this moment. And that's all we got. Recovery Elevator, this is an inside job. It always has been. It always will be. I love you guys. 